Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I'm your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. After discussing the Los Angeles Lakers on our previous podcast, we of course had to talk about the Boston Celtics on this podcast. So I'm here today with Jeremy Stevens. And Jeremy, how are you? I'm good. I didn't realize I was like the Lakers revenge cast. Oh, man. Well, given that you're talking to a Kings fan, any podcast <laughs> after the Lakers podcast is a Lakers revenge cast. That's true. So let's get started by talking about the offseason for the Celtics. And it was really surprising that they had almost no player movement, almost no new players, especially after last season where they returned, I think, four players from the previous season's team. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. It was four players that came back that year. Yeah, so... Going from that to almost no new players at all was really kind of surprising. What were your thoughts on that sort of on the ground? Uh, it's funny because it was kind of a different time where we were very excited to see how this group would would be, you know, playing together healthy. But uh, yeah, no, I was very happy about it at the time, especially that they were willing to put up a little bit of money to keep Marcus smart and they didn't kind of overcommit to like an Aaron Baines contract. And obviously they drafted a great player, so... Yeah, at the time, I was I was definitely cool with it. It's interesting because there's been sort of this talk, and we'll talk about the big trade that the Celtics have made in the past couple of years, but there's been a lot of talk about how they would use their treasure trove of assets to try and get into the market for a superstar player trade. Obviously, they had the Kyrie Irving trade, but there's been a lot of buzz around Anthony Davis. There was at least some buzz around Jimmy Butler, as there, I think, always will be when a star player enters the market and you have a team like the Celtics with a ton of assets that they can afford to get rid of. But it is still a little surprising that they didn't even churn the bottom of the roster for, I don't know, maybe some minimum contract guys that might have been more helpful than someone nailed to the end of the bench, like, say, Gershon Yabisele. Yeah, in retrospect, something like that would have been smart, especially when you look back to Shane Larkin last year, which we didn't really know what to expect, but he played some pretty real playoff minutes and now we have brad wanamaker who came over from europe who's kind of the new larkin but um you also can't really anticipate a, another wave of injuries which is kind of what's happened but um you know when you have these young cost control guys it, it's it sort of feels like a rock and a hard place sometimes where sure you could package them for something but also you could keep them and try to play them and increase their value which it, it it hasn't increased, but I, I'm kind of usually on board with trying to bump up the value of players before trading them. Well, let's talk about the youngest of their young assets, their new draft pick, Robert Williams. I am on the record as having been very unpleasantly surprised by the fact that he fell to the Celtics at 27. I thought <laughs> he was a fringe late lottery pick, probably more in like the 15 to 20 range, but especially for a team like the Celtics to get him at 27, where he doesn't really have to do anything that he isn't all that good at. He can just rim run and block a ton of shots. And he's already, at least from my perspective, become a bit of a fan favorite due to his, let's just say, issues with reading clocks correctly, especially early in the season. But what are your thoughts on the Time Lord so far? Uh, it's It's so bizarre because like, I don't watch a ton of college ball, but I heard a lot of what you were just saying, that he could be like a late lottery guy. But all the Celtics fans on my feet are saying, like, this guy needs to fall to the Celtics. And I'm just reading it thinking, like, well, that's not going to happen if he's projected to go, like, 14th or 15th or something, which is where about, like, Porter Jr. went. But anyway, 
He falls to the Celtics. And what's even crazier is that people were saying like his motor or his work ethic was was like the potential issue when he was the defensive player of the year in his conference twice, I believe, which lazy players don't play defense. I think, I, I mean, I'm kind of just throwing that claim out now, but I believe that to be true. So I, I just can't understand why you would think someone who, you know, busts his butt to make a bunch of defensive plays that ultimately don't turn a lot of heads in the NBA, I would say. It's usually like the super nerds that are that are fans of the defensive guys. So I don't know. It doesn't make sense that he fell. It makes a ton of sense why he's so good. And it, it just, yeah, tons of upside. 7'6 wingspan on a 6'10 guy. It's kind of insane. Yeah, I was less worried about his effort level in the NBA than I was worried about his lack of an offensive game outside of five feet. But on the Celtics, that doesn't really matter anywhere near as much as it would have mattered if he was expected to be a heavy minute contributor for a non-playoff team. You know, instead, they can just run him out for a little bit, but for the most part, just get him experience during his rookie year and hopefully develop him into the replacement for Al Horford. Now, obviously, they're very, very different players, but I think they could fill a similar sort of niche as defensive centers. He's not ever going to be the kind of passer that Horford is, and he's going to be a different type of defensive presence for sure. But getting that kind of talent that late in the first round is the kind of thing that turns middling playoff teams into championship You'll see, um, I mean, assuming his like minutes go up as he gets older, you're going to actually see probably a lot of good passes out of him. Uh, the ones he've had, he's had now haven't really showed up on the stat sheet as assists because obviously if they don't make the basket. But um, it's, it's hard to gauge sometimes because when you see a big man pass, you're like, wow, he's so good. But it, it, it's really like good in relation to other people at his position and not good in, you know, in comparison to other guards. But he's actually pretty good at it. So, And I, I think he's going to be... I'm just going to assume he'll be shooting threes in two years because I don't know if you've seen Aaron Baines' terrible shooting form, but if he can knock him down, then I think they'll have Williams doing it too. I don't think it's as much that I don't think that Williams is a good passer or even a good passer for his position. I think it's just that Horford is such a spectacular passer for his position that it's really hard to hit that level for any player coming into the league. That's true. Horford's probably... I mean, Jokic is like the definitive best passing big in the league now so and and draymond's kind of had a bad year so horford's probably the second best at it which is pretty remarkable i think there's a clear top four of Jokic, marcus all horford and draymond and then the question is just where horford falls in that group but even if williams is a really solid passer i'm not sure he makes it to the top of the top like that but let's move on to talking about what the regular season has looked like so far for the celtics and they have been a very inconsistent team this year. I think that's a bit of an understatement. They started the year ice cold on the offensive end and then had a stretch after that where they won eight games in a row and were absolutely blistering opposing teams on the offensive end. And then they've dropped three really troubling games recently leading to the players-only meeting that they had after their most recent loss. What's it been like watching the ups and downs of this team so far in the regular season? It's funny because if you go from, you know, reporter to reporter or if you were to entrench yourself in the Celtics Twitter or Reddit page or whatever you want to go to, there are no two opinions that match each other, which almost makes you think every single possible thing has sort of gone wrong. I think more of the issue lies on offense 
even though I've made the argument that better defense will lead to better offense. But um, I think what I learned from like Marcus Morris entering the starting lineup is that they were trying to, or what they just needed was more urgency and kind of generally more anger, which is what he provides. And when you look at this, the five that they started the year with, which was Irving, Brown, Tatum, Hayward, Horford, obviously five good basketball players, but there's no screaming, fist pumping, uh, you know, roughhousing after dunking on people or whatever it might be. So they just needed that. So they found a lot of it. And then, of course, Morris is hurt. Horford's been hurt. Baines just broke his hand. So it kind of derailed things. But um, no- nothing has been like truly terrible, to be honest with you. But they've, they've just fallen short in so many areas. And I think the root of it is kind of body language and, and playing passive basketball. Part of it also is that they've got a much better expected win-loss record than their actual win-loss record. They've lost a couple of close games and then blown the doors off of teams in a bunch of their wins. The other thing is, and this is something that I didn't really expect going into the season, but it's starting to look like they can't really play all three of Brown, Tatum, and Gordon Hayward at the same time because they overlap just enough that you can have two of them out there at any one time and have it work really well. But having three of them out there together, they're sort of all trying to run to similar spots and it sort of clogs up the offense. You're absolutely right. Um, One of the earliest things I wrote was about fighting the redundancy that that group brings as well as Kyrie, where I feel like between Kyrie and those three guys, their best strength is, is probably cutting or, or slashing. I guess slashing is when you're cutting, but with the ball. And yeah, when you have those four guys trying to all do the same thing, they were falling into this pattern of they someone would drive and then kick and then drive and then kick and then drive and kick again. And then you have like three seconds left to take a three. And then sure, maybe you've created an open three in the corner, but that guy's not shooting it because he wanted that shot. He's shooting it because there's no time to do anything else. And I don't think players tend to make those shots. So they they have Morrison who who loves to play in isolation and it's, it's kind of weird because like Tatum was theoretically going to be that guy. And I guess he sort of still is, but Brown and Hayward haven't been doing that. So Morris becomes a better fit because he brings that and smart adds some playmaking where his best strength is passing. So other guys off the ball can do their cutting. We've seen Kyrie cutting to the basket off the ball. So yeah, those lineup changes have cut down on the redundancy of those three guys. Let's go into a bit more depth on the big man rotation and I wanted to start with Al Horford. You talked about how earlier the offense has been a little, let's say, rougher than the defense. And I think it's really hard to not have at least top 10 defense with Al Horford anchoring the middle. And especially with the number of solid wing defenders they have, it's even harder to be tough on the defensive end. The thing about Al Horford is... With apologies to Draymond Green, Horford might be the best help defender in the league. And that makes such a difference in the modern NBA when you need someone to be able to rotate and help near the basket when you're spacing the floor out to the three-point line on every possession. Yeah, I think you're touching on something that... um, (laughs) The the biggest difference between Draymond and Horford is probably blocking shots. But between those two guys is that they, they just never make mistakes and there's no statistical value nor is there any way to like visually represent that very well 
But if you just watch the Celtics move around and how they switch, they don't always just kind of strictly switch right away, but sometimes they'll stay on their guys for a second and then kind of do a delayed switch or they'll rotate everyone around, send someone running across the court to go get someone else. They do a lot of kind of different things that I don't see a lot of other teams do. And Horford is always in the middle of that, except, you know, when he's injured. But yeah, just like the collective basketball IQ is 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 so much higher with him that um it's it's weird because there are so many Celtics fans who say you can't use injuries as an excuse, but it's not like the team gets better when players get hurt. So yeah, he's he's really been sorely missed in these past couple losses. It's really interesting because especially on a team that has a superstar offensive player in Kyrie Irving, there's nothing and this sort of boils down to what you were saying earlier about how he doesn't make mistakes. There's really only one thing that can be expected of a big man that Al Horford doesn't do well. He's not a particularly great rebounder. He's an all right box out guy, and the team is at least average on the boards despite his troubles on the glass. The person I always talk about in these sort of circumstances is Brooke Lopez, who his rebounding numbers have always looked bad on an individual basis, but his team tends to rebound better with him on the floor just because he's such a great box out guy. I don't think Horford's quite at that level, but if you ignore the rebounding side of it, just everything you would want out of a big man, he does really well, and he doesn't take over the offense. He's not the Dwight Howard type where he needs 10 post-ups a game to play hard on defense, and those kinds of players are always really underrated, and it used to upset me when people would complain about how, how did Al Horford get such a big contract from the Boston Celtics? He's worth every penny, especially to this team that can use him more effectively, whereas if he were on, say, the Suns, I don't think you'd be able to take full advantage of his talents. Yeah, a couple things there. One is is quick, which is that Horford's been the best player in the playoffs for a team that's gone to the conference finals two years in a row. He's been the best player two years in a row. That's not a max deal. I don't know what is. But as far as rebounding, what the Celtics have done for the past few years, and this even goes before they got him, you know, three or four years ago, maybe... Yeah, I think three years ago, Avery Bradley was putting up career-high rebounding numbers, and Marcus Smart is a great rebounder for a guard who can box out bigs. And then Rozier last Terry Rozier last year was like a far above average rebounder for his position, and I think they've been missing him a little bit. He's he's just been off all year, and the team has just been slaughtered on the boards these past two games. I think out rebounded by a combined it was like almost forty, and yeah, obviously having your big men injured hurts, but one of their better strengths really has been guard rebounding. They just like to have their guards rebound and the bigs out running. And when when yeah, the guards haven't been rebounding either, so it's it's been kind of a an unresolved issue. I don't I honestly don't even have a fix to it. Well, we talked about how Horford being out hurts them basically across the board and that hurts even more when their other center in Aaron Baines breaks his hand and is going to miss a significant amount of time. I'm not sure how much it hurts the Celtics, just in the sense that hopefully Baines being hurt means that Robert Williams gets more run. But Baines is another one of those guys like Horford whose impact will never show up as much in the box score as it does actually on the floor. If you look at all the free throws that Giannis just got against the Celtics, that's the kind of thing that Aaron Baines can prevent happening because Giannis could just bully his way to wherever he wanted to be and no matter how hard you swing at him or whatever he just reaches over and kind of drops the ball in with Baines in the middle you just there I I mean this seriously there's no player in the NBA that can move him when once he has rooted himself somewhere 
And if, if Embiid can't do it, then nobody can do it. So him just keeping people from being places, honestly, has, has been so good for the Celtics this year. And yeah, without him, they get ran over by, by Giannis. And yeah, that's mostly that. Let's move on to talking about the wings and guards in a little bit more depth. And I wanted to start out by talking about Jalen Brown and Gordon Hayward. Jalen has looked a lot better over the past couple of weeks, but he had a rough, rough start to the year. And Gordon Hayward, as you talked about, started the year as a starter, has since been moved to the bench and has looked a little bit better in a bench role. But he just doesn't look like he's all the way back yet. And granted, those kinds of injuries take a lot of time to recover from. And I think the psychological recovery is almost longer than the physical recovery from that kind of an injury. But Hayward just hasn't looked anything close to his old self in the early stretches of this season. Yeah, I've been trying to think back to when Paul George came back from his injury. And I remember he came back at the end of a season, I think came off the bench, but either way, he didn't play a ton. And he was clearly just like Hayward. He was just kind of skittish, taking contact, playing around the basket. And that kind of affected his whole game. And with Hayward, yeah, he actually got, he took a hit last night and finished on a fast break, which was pretty encouraging. But at the same time, I think making that shot had made him like, three of 12 shooting on the night. Uh, Hayward really has gotten a lot better over the year, and I had no idea he would be such a good passer. He's probably maybe the second or no, probably third best passer on the team behind Smart and Horford. So that's been pretty good because the Celtics were struggling to do, (laughs) I guess they've been struggling on and off the ball, but it's nice to have guys cut and have someone like Hayward out there who can find them. But um, yeah, I just don't think any of us were, when I say us, I mean, Celtics fans just really weren't prepared to to see what that kind of recovery process would be because we haven't had any really long-term injuries like that since probably Kevin Garnett in 2009. So it's kind of a learning experience. It's 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 a learning experience for Hayward too when you think about it where he's never had to recover from an injury like this before. You know, not that I know of, so it's kind of uncharted territory for everyone. And I think Jalen Brown's just totally in his own head. Because one game or even one minute, he's like taking weird shots and slumping his shoulders. And the next minute, he's dunking on Giannis with his non-dominant hand. I don't know. I don't know how you just flip a switch like that. And then he hits back-to-back threes. And then a minute later, he jammed on someone else. I mean, it's clearly all there. I just think he's, he's way, way overthinking his offense. He doesn't look, he doesn't look comfortable. And I feel confident that he'll sort it out. I just don't know how long those kind of things take or specifically what's even really bothering him. I think part of it for him is just that he played such a significant role. He was a starter for every game he played in last year on a team that made significant noise in the playoffs. And now he's sort of had to take a back seat with the return of Hayward and obviously with Jason Tatum blossoming. But it is quite strange to see how he's sort of handling this and something I've seen a lot of in terms of people talking about Jalen Brown is that this is the first time in his life that he hasn't been even the secondary star on his team. You know, he was the third overall draft pick and his first year in the NBA, he already got a couple of stars. His second year in the NBA, he was starting every game and now he is in sort of a reduced role. And I think that takes a lot of adjustment too. just 
in the sense that there's a bit of a difference between being the star player and you can shoot 20 times and make zero shots and still be asked to shoot the 21st time. Whereas when you're sort of a bit player in the offense, you take two or three shots that miss and you start worrying about how long it's going to be before you're sent to the bench. Yeah, it just seems like he puts immense responsibility on himself on a team that's set up to not have to put immense responsibility on anybody. And, and I'm sure it's difficult, the fact that, you know, sometimes you lose your starting spot to injury or weird things happen, but he, he just lost his starting spot because Morris was so much better, honestly. So um, that's just what it's going to have to be for a while. Now, next summer, I'm not convinced that the Celtics will have the highest bid to pay Marcus Morris. So then again, that spot opens back up. So he should be playing with that in mind, I think, that he has a good chance to get back in there. So we're going to talk a lot more about Jason Tatum later. So I wanted to sort of focus a bit more on Kyrie Irving. Both Tatum and Irving have really come on strong after not particularly great starts to the season. It's interesting because Kyrie, I think, is the kind of player that most frequently gets overrated just in the sense that he's not particularly great at doing anything other than scoring. But the thing is, it's almost that he's such the archetype of the kind of player that gets overrated that it's almost easy to overlook just how incredible he is on the offensive end. It's a lot easier to sort of pick apart his flaws, especially when he started the year in such a rough place on the offensive end. But he really is a superstar on the offensive end. And even if he's giving a ton of points back on the defensive end, especially for a team that's got such great defensive personnel like the Celtics, they really do need that primary superstar option. And Irving can certainly score in bunches. Yeah, I mean, what's what's so weird to me, because I never want to make it as simple as this, is that early on Kyrie had like the Jimi Hendrix thing going, and then he cut his hair and he's just been amazing since. And I, I just don't know how it couldn't, be that it, the, there's some transformational moment for him where I guess cutting his hair like kind of made him feel more at home with with whatever I don't know because it seems kind of just a matter of like shots going in and, and starting games off on the right foot but as far as like all the other statistical categories he, he you you'd be I guess not wrong that he doesn't excel in those things but he is on career best paces I think for blocks and steals and rebounds and his passing's pretty good and you know a lot of things have gotten a lot better so and, he, and he's 26 so sometimes we overplay the whole oh he's only so old and he'll get better you know with a uh, I feel like every year we hear it about like Andrew Wiggins and then he goes and does the same thing but Kyrie's one of those guys that actually does get better every year or I'll say he's gotten better every year under the Celtics I can't really attest that he's he changed much in his last like three or four years with Cleveland, it all looked kind of similar aside from like shot attempts. So, but the Celtics have him doing a lot of different things and it's kind of just across the board been better, really. I will say it's definitely fair to say that his defense has been better in Boston than it was in Cleveland. I don't think he's ever going to even reach average on the defensive end, but he's certainly a lot better than he was. And really, I think all the Celtics need to do at this point is just to make sure he never gets in front of a microphone again. Dude, I, I, oh my God. He, <laughs> I don't even know where to start. I don't understand why he's like, it's none of your business for us to all have beliefs. Also, here's everything I've ever thought in my life in five minutes. And then, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, man. So let's move on now to talking about Jason Tatum. And in particular, 
the Jason Tatum and Markel Fultz rivalry, sort of. You recently wrote an article on the hashtag basketball website, which all of you should check out immediately after listening to this podcast. And the thing that has shocked me most about the Jason Tatum and Markel Fultz situation, when that trade happened, I thought it was one of the rare times when it was a win-win trade. The 76ers got exactly what they needed as a third star who could play on ball and off ball, who can shoot really well, who can create plays off the dribble as a secondary creator next to Ben Simmons. And for the Celtics, they picked up an extra draft pick. And instead of the number one pick, consensus number one pick in Fultz being at the same position as their best player, they got a complimentary wing kind of guy in Jason Tatum. I thought that trade was going to work out really well for both sides. And let's just say it has not so far in their NBA careers. Yeah, it's such a whirlwind because at the time when the Celtics won the lottery, it's it's funny that you say, you know, he plays the same position as their best player, which you're right about. But at the time, that was Isaiah Thomas. We thought Thomas and Fultz was going to be the future uh, of the backcourt. And then it became Kyrie Irving. I think that Kyrie trade happened after the the, the Tatum-Fultz thing. But um, yeah, I just, what, what's so weird about it to me is that, and, and it's easy to lose track of every single detail, but um. The fact that there there weren't more questions raised as to why the Celtics would just seemingly give up on Fultz so quickly, <laughs> so quickly that, you know, they like take him for an extra workout and they're like, nope, we're out. And there were a lot more takes about who won and who lost and the trade that is and not about what exactly the Celtics might have seen that made them want to move on from him. And I think the internet becoming the hot take machine that it is is kind of you know, you gloss over some of the more important details in that way. So the, the 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 timeline is still pretty convoluted as to when there were any red flags with faults. Like I remember that summer, people were saying that, you know, he started completely reworking his shot. And the theory was, was there something wrong and you had to rework the shot or did he rework the shot and then that hurt his shoulder? I don't think we we still don't even know the answer to that. But there's a lot of little details in there that I think are bigger than the the kind of big picture things that people were talking about. So I'm not sure necessarily that it was as much that the Celtics saw a ton of red flags with Fultz. Ainge has been on the record as saying that he thought there was a pretty clear number one choice in this draft. And it certainly seems like they thought Tatum was the clear number one. And, you know, maybe they did see something in Fultz that they weren't particularly pleased with. Maybe, who knows? They just thought that Tatum was the best player and Fultz was the second best player and they could trade back a few picks and still get the guy that they wanted. But I think the important thing to note with Fultz and apologies in advance to Jordan Christmas, who had a long conversation with me about Fultz on the Sixers podcast, but it's just really hard for me to believe that the Sixers medical staff has treated Fultz even vaguely properly from the day he showed up in Philadelphia. I mean, this is the team that had no idea how to deal with Nerlens Noel's injury. This is a team that had severe issues with Joel Embiid's injury to the point where he was caught dancing on stage at a Meek Mill concert right after. He, I forget what it was he tore. I think it was his meniscus, but severe injury. And he was playing the night of the injury after the injury. And he was dancing on stage the next day. I just don't trust any medical knowledge that comes out of the Sixers medical staff. And so when they finally found out 
supposedly that Fultz has had thoracic outlet syndrome. That makes a lot more sense to me as the injury that he's just had this entire time that the Sixers haven't treated properly because whoever is running their medical staff must have got all of their degrees from the Bermuda Doctors College and Bar. Yeah, one of the things I touched on in my article, I think, was that Fultz played like three playoff games for Miami and he only played like 23 minutes among those games. And then against Boston in the next series, he didn't play at all, which makes me wonder if they were throwing him out against Miami to like see if he was good to go. But if that's what they're doing, that's that's like not how you're supposed to treat NBA injuries. But the fact that they did that and they didn't play at all the next series, they're either benching him for how he played, which goes against everything they've said about we're building his confidence or whatever. Uh, or it's just that they played him like, did they knowingly play him while he was injured? I don't see why, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's very confusing, but it's just very odd that it happened that way. But um, yeah, I think you're right that um, the Sixers have uh, had not had a good time with injuries, not to mention their rookie this year who had like an allergy to something and like has since A, not played basketball and B, lost 20 pounds just because of whatever run-in he had with that allergy. So. And the worst part is that he broke his foot yeah. right before that, too. So he was out for the season, and then he had that allergic reaction and lost 20 pounds. So forgot about his foot. Him almost dying made me forget about his foot. Exactly. That's the thing with the Sixers is like, oh, I forgot about that terrible injury because they had that other third terrible injury instead. Let's talk about the more positive side of that trade, though, which is the Celtics side. And... Even if it was a straight-up trade, certainly Tatum for Fultz straight up looks like a huge win. And, you know, maybe this is just me looking at it from the outside, but I don't see why any general manager in the NBA trades with Danny Ainge anymore. Like, I don't think there's been a trade that any GM has made with Danny Ainge over the past decade that hasn't been a severe loss for the person on the other end of that phone call. There's really an incredible list of moves that he's made. And obviously, like the Tatum thing and the Kyrie Irving thing, and you can go back to Kevin Garnett. Uh, those those are like the really significant ones. But in the rebuilding years, there was just trade after trade after trade after trade where the Celtics were getting so much value. Um, I'm trying to remember offhand how one of them went, but they, I think they traded Jeff Green to Memphis for Tayshawn Prince in a first... And then they flipped Prince to Detroit for Jonas Jerebko, which was obviously fantastic. We got a first out of Jeff Green and Jerebko played pretty valuable playoff minutes. So it's just like stuff like that. And I don't remember who the pick became, but then there there was something else. It was like a three-way deal maybe in there so that like we now have a Clippers pick or something. Not to mention that when they traded for Ray Allen the same summer they got Garnett, they traded the fifth pick, who was Jeff Green, <laughs> and they threw in two other players. And then somehow in that trade got another pick back from Seattle, which I don't understand how. And then that pick was Glenn Davis, who also played a ton of playoff minutes over the years. So it's all those little ones that I think are more impressive where, where GMs are like, you know, no one's going to write about this, but we definitely shouldn't have done it. They also like facilitated like Cleveland clearing space for LeBron to return there. And they got, I think Tyler Zeller in a, in a second rounder or something. I don't know. But um, the fact that there hasn't been a trade for about a year now, maybe means Ainge has finally been blacklisted from all the other GMs. But um, speaking of that extra pick from the trade, I am not holding out 
on the Kings getting passed by the Rockets, Grizzlies, the Jazz. I'm not holding out. I feel good about that pick. How dare you? I'm saying it. Unbelievable. All right. Well, that's been Jeremy Stevens. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Let's. <laughs> no, I mean, the thing is that honestly, going into the season, I was expecting that Kings pick to be top five, and I was expecting to be a lot more pissed off than I think I'm going to be. Like, I thought it would be top five, too. Even if that pick ends up like 10, 11, 12, I won't be anywhere near as upset as I would have thought I would be. And the other thing is that. <laughs> You know, we talk about players who improve, but Vladi Divas went from inarguably the worst GM in basketball to maybe like 21st, 22nd, which is such a big improvement that it's, That's accurate. you know, hard to complain about it, even though I'm talking to someone whose GM is one of the three best ones in the league. Yeah, no, you've definitely, just just for now, I'm looking at the standings. It probably puts you back over like Chicago, Cleveland, Phoenix, New York, of course. Washington, just because it feels, you know, the the whole, I guess being a sports fan in general is like, what have you done for me lately? It's like, oh, the Kings have played pretty decent lately, so management's okay for now. Well, put it this way, it helps when you have arguably the fastest player in the league and you decide, let's not run at the slowest pace in basketball. I think that would be a good move for us. But we're here to talk about the Celtics and not the Kings. So going back to Jason Tatum, it's interesting to think of where he fits in long term, just in the sense that I think his best role is as a feature scorer, and that's not really going to be something he can do with Kyrie Irving as the lead man. And who knows, maybe we see something similar to exactly what Kyrie did, which is Tatum deciding he wants his own team. Although he has said pretty definitively recently that he wants to be a Celtic for life, so... Who knows? Either way, he's really fun to watch. He can score incredibly effectively from all three levels. And even if Fultz had panned out, I think this trade would still look like a win for the Celtics just because Tatum has already looked like such a foundational piece. Tatum's been a little more featured than I think you're letting on to there. Um, but the thing is, he he plays so passively sometimes that it might not look like it. But the Celtics effectively... I don't know, by design or not, have been using him as if he is the second best player on the team, which he kind of has been. Uh, he kind of woke up around the same time that Kyrie did. But yeah, he, he he tends to just not look for his shot, and he's not a great passer, so he, he gets, I guess he traps himself. But um, he, he's so good that I think he's going to work through those things as well. As a general rule, I think we should avoid saying woke or woke up in any way regarding Kyrie Irving. Just that sort of spawns Kyrie microphone comments, which... All right. All right. Okay. If you are really very truly woke, you know how good Tatum... I was going to say, if you are truly woke, you know how good Jason Tatum is. Fair enough. But let's move on from that and talk about the future outlook for this team. And I wanted to start by sort of going over the injury stuff. And given that the Celtics have dropped their last three games in pretty convincing fashion, what do you think the impact is of... Baines being out for as long as he's going to be out, given their relative lack of center depth, especially with Horford still not playing. Yeah, Baines has been really, really important on the defensive end. And as as we discussed all the redundancy earlier about who gets shots, who plays passively, who, who's been hot shooting or not, it, it's nice to have a guy in the lineup who truly doesn't care if he gets to shoot the ball at all. I think the last... 
the last full game he played healthy, or at least one of them, he played, I don't know, 10, a little more than 10 minutes probably, and he took one shot, it was from three, and he made it, and then he never shot the ball again. Then he played a bunch of defense. And it's sometimes that's what you want out of your lineups. But when guys get hurt, and then all of a sudden you have like, let's just say for the sake of example, other guys are hurt, and you have Baines, uh, and then you have to run like Ojale, uh, Daniel Tice or something. And that, those three guys don't share the court. But when you have too many guys like that, it gets a little hairy. So he's really great when guys are healthy. But when your offensive options go down, then you, you run out of options very quickly. So he fits in perfectly with the healthy team, basically. And otherwise, it's a mess. I think Baines is, and this is a really underrated skill around the league, but I think he's one of the best screen setters in the league. And given that he isn't the kind of player that really needs to shoot the ball a lot. The fact that he can set really hard screens and teams have to at least tag him if he decides to roll to the rim. And now that he's shooting three-pointers, not brilliantly, but at least well enough that teams need to pay attention to him out there and not leave him completely wide open. Even if he never scores the ball, he's going to have a huge positive impact on the offensive end just by facilitating everybody else's work. Not only does he set really good screens, but um, there's this thing that the Celtics do that I don't see other teams do that much, which is when a player drives, someone like Baines will effectively box out before the guy you know, drives all the way to the basket just to clear out whoever the other team's center is. And I don't really, I don't think it's a moving screen because it, you know, it's, it's effectively a box out that's just way too early, but it's a, it's a nice little thing that he does. So we've talked about the Danny Ainge trade blacklist, but I do want to dive back into that for a bit because the Celtics are in a really interesting place in the Eastern Conference right now. And I'm wondering if you think the Celtics will be players at all in the upcoming trade market, at least before free agency. So I'm I'm never on I'm never someone to say that they should make trades just for the sake of making trades. Uh but you know Ainge is always on the phone and I haven't written or anything about this yet, but it might be a future article for me, which is that I would be intrigued at the availability of Bradley Beal. And I just looked up his contract. So he's $25 million this year, 27 next year, and then 28 the year after. Someone told me that the, the third year was a player option. Uh, the, the page that I'm on does not have a player option, though. So I'm, I'm thinking we would have him for all that time. He's a scorer. He's someone you could package two guys to go get. <laughs> I'm going to cry like whoever gets traded away, no matter what. But uh, if you're going to go get anyone, he, he kind of fills the need that they have, which is sort of like a scoring two guard or you know you could package a forward plus someone to go get him so i'd be interested in that i haven't heard any rumblings about it yet so i don't know if it's something on the down low or maybe the celtics just don't care about him but uh if i were to turn my attention anywhere it'd be towards him because they can't even trade for anthony davis uh because of like the rose rule so yeah that's really interesting and one that i don't think i'd thought about enough but i think bradley beal would be an excellent fit for them and you know, you meant, you mentioned that you would be crying about whoever they sent out in that trade. But I think the question for the Celtics really is where they think their timeline is, because I think it'll be really hard for them to beat the Raptors this season in the playoffs. I think they'd probably struggle against the Bucks, but in a playoff setting, I think I would put them above anyone in the Eastern Conference except for those two teams. And so then the question at that point becomes, do we try to make a swing for the fences trade for someone like Bradley Beal? And I'm not even sure, honestly, 
who else they would want to consider for that kind of deal, given that they can't get Davis until the offseason. But they're in a really interesting place where I think for the long term, it's going to be them and Philly leading the conference. And the question really is just, does Kawhi stick around? Because if he does, they might really regret not pulling the trigger on a blockbuster deal this year. But if he leaves, the Celtics are set up really well to be the cream of the crop of the Eastern Conference for a long time. Yeah, it's there's this balance between like being competitive and also managing the books. And, you know, you can only pay so many guys. And, you know, I, again, I'm not one to tr- sort of raise concern and trade people for the sake of trading people. But if you want to consolidate, it kind of feels like they already did that with Kyrie, but they have so many picks coming up. And evidently they have a bunch of players that do the same thing. Uh, I wouldn't advocate for any, you know, the need to get rid of any one player. But if you're to bring someone in, uh, I I do think the Beal contract is way too good to ignore. When you look at like, you know, Wall is going to make be making forty plus million. There's so many supermax guys, and that the supermax contract is a trap, which could be its whole other own podcast. But yeah, you know, between yeah, basically just between the money and trying to predict, well, how much better is this team going to get? Have guys hit their ceiling? Maybe, maybe not. There's two contracts in the league that I think hamstring you more than any other. The first is dramatically overpaying for a role player, which you see with the Timothy Mozgovs and the Bismack Biombos of the world. The second worst is the Supermax contract for a top 20 player. If it's a top five player, worth it every single time. If it's a top 10 player, it's probably still worth it, but it's a little iffier. But the Wizards are going to be paying John Wall $47 million in the last year of his contract. And technically that's a player option, but I think the earth will crash into the sun before John Wall declines that player option. <laughs> and the Wizards are play, are paying a guy who's clearly a very talented basketball player who was a number one pick for their franchise, who's been a multiple time all-star and is a really, really, really good player, but just is not worth that kind of money, especially in the later years of his contract as a point guard who relies so much on his athleticism. And those are the kind of contracts, in addition to the massively overpaying for role players that just destroy teams' caps for the immediate and the long-term future. And the problem with the Celtics is that I just don't see how they manage to keep both Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown long-term. And it certainly seems like Brown would be the player that they'd be more willing to trade. But given his tough start to the year, his value is lower than it's been in a long time. And if you're not getting someone like Bradley Beal in a trade for Brown, this is going back to your point where you don't make trades just for the sake of making trades. I think you have to make a significant upgrade if you're willing to trade a 22-year-old recent number three overall pick who's shown flashes of being an incredible player on both ends of the floor. I will point out that Bradley Beal, also a number three overall pick, and he's 25. There you go. I mean, Bradley Beal would be the perfect trade for them, especially given that they can't get Anthony Davis. And I think the question just becomes exactly how much of that asset trove do you have to give up because if the wizards ask for something like both tatum and brown or brown and two first round picks rather than one first round pick i'm not sure i make that deal the other thing though is that i just doubt that ernie grunfeld makes that kind of a trade because he is 
I mean, I want to say that he's hanging on to his job by a thread, but the truth is he should have been fired a decade ago, so who knows? Maybe there's no end to the amount of botching that he can do to that roster and still retain his job. We, yeah, we, we can't. It would be a mistake to to try to predict his actions by logic, which is why I'm holding on to another possible fleece deal where the Celtics can uh, can can maybe convince them that they're making a rebuild now, but also be competitive later move, which, you know, Jalen could do. I mean, as we just saw with the Trevor Ariza trade, I think it's easier to fleece Ernie Grunfeld than it is to fleece anyone else in the league. Oh, yeah. I mean, rookie GM James Jones, who already is getting flack for having bought out Tyson Chandler as early as he did, managed to get a young player entering restricted free agency in return for a 33-year-old who might take the Wizards from the 12th seed to the 10th seed. Yeah, I think people are underrating that. If if Ubre just somehow ends up being really good, then that deal is amazing. And if he's not that good, all they gave up was Trevor Ariza, who didn't want to be there. Even if he's only like an okay role player who they get in a reasonable deal in restricted free agency, that's such a win over a guy that clearly had given up on your team and was on a one-year deal anyway. He was walking this summer. They were getting nothing for him unless they traded him. And instead, they get a young cost-controlled asset who's literally a decade younger than him at the same position. So anyways, let's 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 trade with Washington. And speaking of trades, we talked about in-season trades. I want to look ahead to trades that they might be looking into making this off-season. And given that they can trade for Anthony Davis once the season is over, I think they're going to be one of the clear players in the Anthony Davis sweepstakes and I think the recent conversation about LeBron quote-unquote tampering is ridiculously overblown, given that he was literally just answering a question that someone asked him in a reporting scrum. But Davis's comments after that, I think, are far more telling. Basically, he said he cares far more about legacy than money. And if you care far more about legacy than money, much as it brings me physical pain to say this, there are really only two teams in the league that can't be topped in terms of legacy and those the Celtics and the Lakers. So it seems like they're going to be the two prime players for him as he enters what's not really free agency, but is realistically free agency in the sense that the Pelicans are going to lose him for nothing if they don't trade him this offseason, unless somehow everything changes and he decides to agree to sign that Supermax there. Yeah, one thing is I, I don't understand why the Pelicans wouldn't try to keep DeMarcus Cousins as like the last ditch effort to to keep Davis. But um as far as like a potential Celtics trade, the the hill that I'm dying on that obviously there's disagreement among all the fans is that I am not trading Jason Tatum. And it's not about how good any players are. It's the fact that the Lakers could put their whole roster on the table and the Celtics, minus LeBron, obviously, and the Celtics could beat that deal with just like a few good assets. Unless you're rating, you know, you're still like buying all the Lonzo Ball stock and you think Josh Hart's like the future, uh, I don't know, one of those magical two-way players and you think Ingram's the next Durant, then sure, maybe you've, you you would view that as like the war chest. But um, the, the Celtics have a few good young players and they have a ton of draft picks and there's just no reason to outbid themselves for it. So I don't, I don't know what's really going to shake out between now and then. I do think the tampering thing is funny because when Isaiah Thomas was on the Celtics, he was always recruiting people, especially at the All-Star game. He was talking to guys, so people just want to be mad at LeBron because it's LeBron. But um, if uh, if the Pelicans are patient, which I don't know why they would be, other than that there's no good deals out there, uh, then yeah, I would, I would think the Celtics would have the best offer, but I still won't think they'll overpay 
because the the pressure is on the Pelicans really to make a move because the Celtics will be at least pretty good either way. It's funny because the Pelicans front office and coaching staff have made it very, very clear in recent days that they're absolutely not trading Anthony Davis under any circumstances. It'll change. Well, this is another situation that I'm looking at similar to the Washington situation is given Dell Demps' complete failure to build a consistent playoff team around inarguably one of the five best players in the league makes me wonder if he's going to hold on to Davis just because the minute Anthony Davis leaves for any kind of trade package, the Pelicans absolutely fall apart and Demps loses his job and maybe Gentry does too. So who knows? Maybe, and this is something that has also come up, anytime there's a GM whose job security is in question, they make a ton of moves that are really bad for the long-term future of a team. So if you have any GM that's on the hot seat as the owner of a team, and those aren't exactly the smartest basketball people in the world either, but I just don't see why you would let a GM whose job security is in question continue to stick around in the role if he's going to make trades that are only for the benefit of his own job security. And that's certainly something that we saw with the Billy King trade that completely destroyed the Nets for half a decade. Granted, a large part of that is because Darren Williams absolutely fell off the map, but panic trades from GMs that are close to losing their jobs, or in the case of Demps, maybe panic no trades to try and keep his job, those are the kinds of things that destroy franchises for the long term. So I think the question there is, do the Pelicans have assets to make those short-term panic trades to put one or two, I don't think they're going to get star players, but guys good enough again to maybe win a first round playoff series and go, hey, maybe we shouldn't break it up because we did a thing because that's kind of what it was last year, I guess. So I don't I don't know, you know, their draft pick situation, but it seems like like you don't think they would package like, you know, one of their guards between like Etwan Moore and someone. I mean, it just boggles my mind that the Pelicans have needed one thing basically every year since Anthony Davis's second or third year in the league. All they've needed All they've needed are two competent wing players. They didn't need to be great. They didn't even need to be good. They just needed to be competent. And they've completely failed in that regard. And that, I think, is more indicative of Del Demps' tenure in New Orleans than anything else. It's like there was a clear need, and they just couldn't find a way to solve that need. Granted, those are the kind of players that are in the most demand around the league, But the fact that they didn't even manage to get one of them in the past five years is really concerning. And if I'm Anthony Davis, I think that turns me off from re-signing in New Orleans more than anything else. Especially when the Celtics have 17 wings and they can move 12 of them to get them. But it's funny because I think like two wings, it was Ariza and Mbamute that left Houston. And then Gerald Green before signing with Houston, was just floating around unsigned for a while. Who I don't see why he, the Pelicans wouldn't want him. So there's three just in the past couple of years, and I remember there was a couple other guys that got traded. I, I mean, <laughs> they could have even went and got Oubre. Who cares, right? So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, there's just, because there are so many interchangeable wings that are moving around all the time, and they, they couldn't even stumble and fall into a wing through a trade, free agency, or the draft when there are so many. It's it's kind of as funny as like the Suns somehow not having a point guard when like the point guards became like the 
the cash currency of basketball now? Well, the worst part for the Suns is that they've had a number of good point guards and they've gotten rid of all of them for pennies on the dollar. They had four. <laughs> they had Thomas, they had Isaiah Thomas, Devin Booker, Goran Dragic, and Brandon Knight, who at the time for a spell was healthy. They had four point guards at the same time and they didn't get, I don't think they got anything really. And Bledsoe. Don't forget Bledsoe. I had blood, so. All right. Anything else you want to talk about before we wrap up? I don't think so. I I, was, I wanted to make a statement about how I'm not hitting the panic button, but I remembered I already did because I think when the, the Celtics were like 9 and 8, I said, I'm not panicking unless they lose to the Knicks at home, and then they lost to the Knicks at home. <laughs> and then I was really mad about that. And then they, But I was justified because they, start, they, they changed up the starting lineup after that, and then they've been pretty good. So now I'm, I think they sort of righted the ship. I am no longer pressing the panic button. I would like to see how things play out. The second half is always really great. Brad Stevens tightens the rotation. It all works. And I, I, I posted some really stupid tweets about the, the bring Bradley Beal to Boston because basketball initiative. And I'm, <laughs> I'm still endorsing that movement. Uh, I got to get that trending somehow. So that's, I don't, I don't know. That's that. Well, I will definitely co-sign that movement just because I don't want to see anyone suffer playing for the Washington Wizards any longer than they have to. Yeah, it's it's, it's really a humane movement when you think about it. <laughs> exactly. It's like we're the rescue society of the NBA trying to get anyone off the Washington Wizards. Danny Ainge works for good. We should not demonize him for, for making good deals. Danny Ainge definitely does not work for good. I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Well, he is Jeremy Stevens. You can find him on Twitter at taco underscore H-A-U-S. And you can find his work on the hashtag basketball website. Be sure to check out his recent article about the Tatum faults rivalry. And also be sure to check my work out on the hashtag basketball website and on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. If you've been enjoying the podcast or if you have not been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review. Any sort of feedback is appreciated. And feel free also to reach out to me via email in addition to Twitter, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.